To all who gave, thank you. Thank you for your patience and long-suffering. I think it's likely that you were patient with me because God is patient with us. Thank you for living the gospel in ways that can be seen. It was January 7th, 1918, and a small Hungarian immigrant stepped out onto the stage of the Hippodrome Theater in New York. The Hippodrome was located in the theater district of downtown Manhattan, and it was at that time the largest theater in the world. It had a seating capacity of 5,300 people, which was nearly double that of the New York Metropolitan Opera. And it was there that a small man, not much larger than five foot six, stepped out onto the center of the stage. He was soon accompanied by an eight foot tall, 10,000 pound African elephant. The elephant was named Jenny, and the man was named Harry. Harry Houdini. After some pomp and circumstance, 12 large men brought out a heavy wooden cabinet, and they presented it to the audience from all angles. With the help of an animal trainer, Jenny, the elephant, was led inside the cabinet, and the door was shut behind her. With the animal inside, the 12 men then turned the cabinet so that its opening was directly facing the audience. This was the final act of the night on the largest stage in the world by the most famous magician in the world. The crowd waited in suspense. 5,300 people watched intently. By my estimations, that's 10,559 eyeballs, give or take one glass eye, scrutinizing every move Houdini made. The stale, heavy air reeked of bad breath and animal dung, and the auditorium was filled with the acoustics of a thousand bottoms squirming in their seats. Harry ran his hands along the wood. This was his moment. Harry opened the door, and the audience was stunned. The elephant had vanished. The cabinet was empty. Harry Houdini had made a five-ton African elephant just disappear. The Hippodrome was stunned. At that time, it was the largest and most likely the heaviest disappearing act in history. But it wouldn't be the most significant. No, that peculiar feat belongs to the beginning of the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus and his disciples gather together one final time. They talk with the Messiah a bit, and then he suddenly vanishes behind a cloud. One moment he was there, and the next moment he was gone. You can bet people were surprised. My friend Joel Gregory, who's perhaps the most well-traveled person that I know, he points out in an old sermon of his that Jesus is the most looked-at person in human history. He says, if you go to the great art museums of the world, the Louvre, the British Museum, the National Museum, wherever it is, there are more paintings of Jesus there than any other person in history. Jesus is the centerpiece of Western art. If you go to a Catholic church, and there's a billion Catholics in the world, 
there he is, hanging on a crucifix. If you go to a Protestant church or maybe a seminary, there he is in pictures and in Bibles and in stained glass windows. Jesus is the most looked at person in human history. But here's the catch. How many people in human history have looked at him? And yet, since the ascension, hardly anybody has actually seen him. It's the greatest disappearing act in history. It's more surprising than Houdini's disappearing elephant, and perhaps it is more sad as well. The ascension of Jesus is a bittersweet moment in the life of the church. It's kind of like graduation. It's bittersweet because a person whom you love is going to leave. And yet there still appears to be so many things left undone. With any vanishing act, timing is everything. Just before Jesus disappears, his disciples ask him a question, and it's about timing. Lord, is it at this time that you will restore the kingdom to Israel? This is the type of question that actually represents a whole constellation of questions. It's one of those tip-of-the-iceberg questions that's just floating around. Lord, is this the time that you will remove the foreign rulers from our land? Lord, is this the time that you will overtake the political orders? Lord, won't you live up to our political expectations? Lord, is this the time that you will defeat those who persecute your church? Lord, is this the time that you will wipe away the tears from our eyes? Lord, you defeated the grave at Easter. Won't you defeat our enemies as well? And Jesus, he responds to the disciples. It's not for you to know the times or ages which the Father has fixed by his own authority. The Magician's Guild doesn't easily reveal its secrets. But one thing is certain about this moment. Here we find a community of people who do not know where they are headed or how long it will take them to get there. Most churches are more like the communities in the New Testament than they realize. And I hope you never forget it. After Jesus gives a final lesson to his disciples, he's hidden by a cloud and he just disappears. With any vanishing act, timing is everything. One thing is certain. The ascension of Jesus means that a new age has begun. It's a new time period in which Jesus is no longer bodily present in the exact way that he was during his earthly ministry. To be sure, there's a sadness about the ascension. It's a bittersweet event, a seemingly lonely event. To look at it positively, the ascension has brought about a time for preaching and a space for the church. But to look at it negatively, Karl Barth, perhaps the most significant theologian of the 20th century, in his Dogmatics and Outline, he writes that perhaps we might also label this as the time of abandonment. Abandonment. It's the time marked by the loneliness of the church on earth. It's the time in between the times. The long breath the church takes between the ascension and the second coming. It's the time in which the church is united with Christ only in faith and by the Holy Spirit. With any vanishing act, timing is everything, and Jesus just disappeared.
I'm sure some of the disciples were frightened, others confused, and others astonished as they stood there on the sandy ground in Jerusalem. I imagine the warm Palestinian air swirled around them while a whirlwind of questions churned within. What on earth? Where is he? Is he gone forever? Has he abandoned us? How will the church survive without him? How will we be successful in preaching and teaching about a person who nobody can see? Who would want to join a community whose figurehead can't be seen? Who indeed? Jesus had vanished and the disciples were left standing there. He was out of sight, but likely not out of mind. After all, his disappearance must have made them think back to the things that Jesus said in his own ministry. I bet some of Christ's own words lingered in their minds. You know how his sayings are sticky. In John 14, Jesus memorably told his disciples, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Well, if that's true, then what happens when you can no longer see Jesus? What happens when Jesus, who is the way to the Father, can no longer be found? What happens when Jesus, who is the truth, can no longer be located? What happens when Jesus, who is the life, can no longer be seen when many of your friends in church are dying? If some of the disciples felt a bit confused, lonely, or even abandoned on that day, we shouldn't fault them. I bet you're still wondering, what happened to Jenny the elephant? How did Harry Houdini make the elephant disappear? When there's an elephant in the room, you know it because it's impossible to overlook. To make an animal that large disappear and to do so with 5,300 people scrutinizing your every move, that is a vanishing act of elephantine proportions. How did Harry Houdini do it? Do you remember how I told you that the Hippodrome Theater was the largest theater in the world at the time? The Hippodrome's size made it easy for Houdini's audience to underestimate the size of his wooden cabinet. The size of the theater made the cabinet appear much smaller than it really was. On top of that, the theater's shape made it difficult for most people to look directly through the cabinet. Each half of the cabinet's back door had an oval cutout in the edge, so that when closed, the back of the cabinet showed a circular opening at the back. The audience looked through the cabinet and out the hole in the back. And the elephant wasn't there anymore. But where did the elephant go? That's the question. Where did the elephant go? Jenny, the elephant, never left the cabinet. While the cabinet was being slowly swung frontwards by the stage crew, the trainer who had gone into the cabinet with the elephant was moving the elephant to one side. Inside the cabinet, a black interior curtain was pulled into place, and the interior curtain hid the elephant from the inside. When the front-end curtains were drawn apart, the audience saw an empty cabinet, 
Nothing could be seen except the circular opening at the back. Nothing could be seen except the absence. The light coming in from the opening in the back gave the interior a perspective that minimized the darkness and the size of the interior. Also, the front curtains were widely bunched at the sides so that the elephant remained hidden. Houdini was able to use perspective to trick the human eye. The elephant never left the cabinet. It just no longer could be seen. Jesus might no longer be visible in the way that he was, but he's not absent. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and that is not the same thing as being absent. In the wider spectrum of Scripture, Jesus says that he will be with us until the end of the age. And in John, he says he will not leave us as orphans. Jesus also says that where two or three are gathered, he will be there. He also says he'll be present in the breaking of bread and the sharing of a cup. It sounds to me that Jesus has made promises elsewhere. He has promised to be present in the future of the church, even though it might be hard to see. At the origins of the church, Christ has promised to be with us. And maybe this is why the ascension happens at the beginning of the book of Acts. Like Christ in the wilderness, the church in Jerusalem is tempted early. But as the story of the church in Acts goes forward, we see the presence of Jesus embodied in the lives and activity of Peter and John. Peter and John heal the sick and the lame the way Jesus heals the sick and the lame. And the apostles are persecuted the way Jesus was persecuted. And like Christ, they're at the center of controversy in the synagogues. And when Stephen is martyred, Luke can't help but describe Stephen's death in a way that looks and sounds a lot like the death of Jesus. Even at Stephen's own death, it claims that he saw Jesus. Then later in Acts, Saul turns and he finds the risen Lord himself. Jesus doesn't really appear to be absent from the church in Acts at all. He haunts the whole book. Christ appears to be present not only through the presence of the Spirit, but in the very ways that the church came to remember its own story. He was present. And if I were to hazard a guess, Jesus won't be absent from the churches where you will serve. And when you look back over your life, you will see it Christ haunted. He will be with you till the end of your age, even though it might be hard to see, even though the dark clouds have moved in. He'll be there. And yet the cynics are right. The church is a place of many funerals, many heartaches. It's a community of many lonely hours. I have told you that the ascension is bittersweet, and I've said much about the bitter. But don't forget that the gospel has a very sweet aftertaste. Much later in the New Testament, the book of Ephesians will comment on the event of the ascension. This is what it says. When he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. 
Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. Jesus rose from the depths to the heights so that he might fill all things. He led captive a host of captives. He led them. Christ's work is anagogical and paschal. He lifts us up and he saves us. He rose from the depths to the heights. He rose. He rose to be with the Father. Like the perfect priest, Jesus has taken our human weakness and our human frailty. And he's laid it at the feet of the Father. And one day we will meet him again. He rose. He rose. From the depths to the heights he rose. He's gone to be with the Father. And you know the depths. They are the things of this life that you hope won't last. They are the things of this world that you desperately want to come to an end. You know the depths now and you'll know them more deeply when you see the heights. He rose from the depths to the heights. He rose. He rose to be with the Father where there is no night. Where there's no crying, no tears, no sickness, no bills, no pills, no late night trips to the psychiatric ward. Nobody's hungry. Nobody's thirsty. Nobody's afraid anymore. He rose. He rose. From the depths to the heights, he rose to fill all things. He rose to a place where there's no dementia, and your father knows your name. He rose. He rose to where there are no memorial plaques written in loving memory. Because the dead are not merely a memory. He rose. Christ is in a place where there's rest for the restless, hope for the hopeless, homes for the homeless, and joy, deep and lasting joy for the joyless. He rose from the depths to the heights. He rose to fill all things. And Christ promises to return again and to lead you from the depths to the heights.